I first began to discern a call to pastoral ministry as a freshman in college. It's an exciting time in life. There's a strong sense that God is doing a new thing, and there's vision that comes along, and, 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 and steps to be implemented, and a plan comes together, and, and, and you begin to walk this journey that will take a long time, but you know now you're on the path. A lot of times when people begin to explore ministry, there's an eagerness to get on with it. It takes a long time to become ordained in the United Methodist Church, and uh, there's school to, to go to and credentials to satisfy and all these kinds of things that you have to do, mentoring to be had and training and things like that. But you're eager. You want to get started. You got a calling. You're ready to go. And so uh, as a uh, I proceeded through this candidacy process. I was excited uh, as a junior in college to have the opportunity to go on staff at my home church as an intern with the youth ministry. It was exciting because I'd spent half my life in that church. I loved it. The pastors there were mentors to me. The senior pastor was like a father to me. Uh, the youth pastor that had been my youth pastor had moved on, but there was a new guy. I was excited about working with him and learning from him and and just having the opportunity to engage in ministry it would be several more years before I became a pastor, before they were crazy enough to let me actually have a whole church. Um, but student ministry was an opportunity to get engaged and to do and to live into that call. And it was an exciting time. And I had high hopes. Over time, I discovered that those high hopes uh, can get met with different kinds of challenges. And one of those challenges in that setting was what the youth, that the youth ministry was not experiencing the kind of thriving fruitfulness that other people expected, that people in the church expected it to. And so the Staff Parish Relations Committee, if you've got a Methodist background, if you don't, we'll call it the Personnel Committee, uh, decided that the youth pastor needed, they needed to make a change. And so they fired the youth pastor. And a lot of the students, all of the students were confused. Some of the parents were very satisfied, and some were very not satisfied. And I was kind of, in the, I was still the intern. Uh, didn't really know what to do in that situation. Wanted to be available in ministry, but there was a lot of hurt and a lot of challenge and a lot of pain. And so we just kind of did the best we could to, to care for one another and move forward. The larger church was experiencing some challenges in other ways. There was a house on a piece of property adjacent to the church, and the people who owned the house decided to give the house to the church. And you think, well, that's pretty neat. That doesn't sound like a challenge. That's a great asset, a lot of value there, good piece of property, desirable piece of property. The thing is, if you have any knowledge of public code, the idea of getting a 100-year-old three-story Victorian house up to code for public use by a church is kind of a thing. And just try putting an elevator in one of those all the way to the top. That was obviously not a feasible solution. And so the leaders of the church said, we got to figure out what to do with this house. And they decided to sell it, not tear it down. They would sell it. And they decided to sell the house for $1. Now, most people would get pretty excited about the idea of buying a 100-year-old Victorian house in pretty good shape for a dollar. But the purchase came with a condition. If you bought it, you had to move it 
off that piece of property. And that costs over $100,000, so it's not quite as sweet of a deal as it sounds. Still a good deal, but not quite as uh, sweet as $1. The thing about it is, when you try to take a 100-year-old house out of the middle of a kind of an uptown area in a city with a real sense of history, it can get kind of controversial. And the neighborhood, some of the neighbors around decided that you know, they would do what they could to stop the church from moving the house. And so the relationship between the church and the neighborhood became strained, and it was very challenging. In fact, one day I was sitting in the senior pastor's office. Again, like a dad to me, guided me, taught me so much, and still does. The guy's on speed dial for me when I need help. One of the first people I call. We're sitting in his office one day. The administrator comes in. Church administrator comes in. He just got a report from one of the attorneys who attended the church on the latest lawsuit from the neighborhood to try to stop the church from moving this house. That's how serious this guy. There were lawsuits happening. I said, "Do I need to go?" And he's like, "No, no. I just stay here." And we listened to what the guy said, and then he left. And I'm sitting there with my pastor, he takes off his glasses. And this is the kind of guy when he takes off his glasses, you knew it was about to get real. And he said to me, Matt, I'm not going to pretend this internship has been a positive experience for you. Now, that's not normally what you want to hear at the end of an internship, is it? <laughs> kind of think, all right, it's been good. I've learned some things. Maybe I've made some connections, got some networking happening, and uh, it's been positive. And this guy, my pastor, I love him. He's a straight shooter. Maybe you know some straight shooters. If you know, you can be really grateful for them when, you know, at times and not at other times, but at most times. Not going to pretend this internship has been a positive experience for you. He said, the reason for that is, is all the stuff that's been going on. But that doesn't mean it was an unhelpful experience. And really, it's good that you've learned how hard this can be now. Because some people don't learn until later, and they burn out really fast. You need to know that ministry is not all baptisms and preaching and conversions, mission trips, and glory. <laughs> sometimes it gets really hard. There are sinners involved, and sometimes there's conflict, and sometimes it's really hard, and sometimes it's really painful. And so it's good, even though it's been hard, it's good for you to learn now, in college, how hard it can be. And that experience created for me, not the conversation, but the whole experience, created for me something of a crisis of calling. I became unsure of whether or not I wanted to give myself the rest of my life to pastoral ministry. I wasn't unsure of the calling. I knew that was still there. The question is whether or not I would obey it. And it took a year, maybe a year and a half, Maybe I want to do something else. Maybe I want to get a different kind of job. A nine-to-five kind of thing. <laughs> something a little bit, you know, you think something with fewer sinners involved, but really there isn't anything like that, is there? <laughs> For a year and a half, a year or so, I was holding back from Jesus and from what he was calling me to do. Now, my guess is I'm not the only one in the room who's ever held back from Jesus before. Don't raise your hand. We'll just assume at one point in time or another, all of us have kind of held back from the Lord. We'll just take that as a given. We've all been there. 
things don't go the way we expect. We have a plan. The plan never materializes. Something unsettles our lives. When things get difficult, we have a tendency to say, Jesus, I thought you could handle control, but it's gone badly, so maybe I'll just take that back and I'll, I'll handle it. The thing is, it's very hard to follow Jesus when we're holding back, isn't it? Say, so, you know, we, we want to follow Jesus, and we'll kind of nod our head at him and say, yeah, we're here, we'll show up occasionally, we're, we're there, and we'll, you know, read the Bible with our kids sometimes and show up occasionally. We, we love you, Lord, but in our hearts we know we're just not all, we're not all there. And it's very difficult to actually follow Jesus when we're in that place, isn't it? Because our hearts are divided. Or part of us is withheld. The thing is, when life doesn't go according to plan, or things don't pan out the way we expected them to, or maybe we're hurt, or maybe just we don't trust the Lord to really have our best in mind, the answer isn't holding back, it's more surrender. It's not grasping harder at control. It's releasing control to the Lord Jesus. Maybe we could put it this way. If we're going to talk about discipleship and following Jesus, maybe we just need to remember, kind of echo the statement. Disciples, followers of Jesus, don't determine the agenda. They commit without condition. That's what it means to follow Jesus, right? That we don't come to him with our agendas. We don't come to him with our conditions, with our expectations. We come to him with open hands. Lord, your will be done. No conditions. No ifs, ands, or buts when it comes to following. And the Bible shows us people who kind of live on both sides of that, doesn't it? We'll find people in Scripture who come to Jesus with all sorts of expectations and all sorts of conditions. We're going to look at three examples of those kinds of people in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 in just a minute. And then Scripture shows us other people who come to Jesus with no conditions, with no expectations, just grateful for His mercy and His grace and His presence in their life. And we discover that those are the ones who really find joy in following Jesus. So let's take a look at what Matthew has to say. What kind of people does it show us when it comes to agendas or unconditional commitment? Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus has got, there's all these crowds. People are just showing up, right? And so this scribe comes along, verse 19, a scribe approached Jesus and he says this, teacher, I will go I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that seems like a good start to a ministry conversation, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm out in the community or something and somebody comes along and says, hey, preacher, I heard about your church. I want to get involved. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm thinking, that's great. Come on down. We'll put you in charge of something. You know, let's get to work. Let's, have some, let's have, see some fruitfulness. Let's see some ministry. Jesus doesn't do it quite like that, does he? Here's this guy, and this and you need to know scribes, a scribe in first century Judaism, this guy, he knows stuff. He's trained. Scribes were trained in the Old Testament law. He had been through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy more than any of us, more than all of us put together. He probably had it memorized, every last bit of it. I mean, this is a, you think you know your Bible? 
You don't know anything compared to this guy. He knows, he knows his Bible. He put a preacher or a Sunday school teacher to shame. This is a guy who knows the scriptures. He knows what's there. He knows uh, just his, his, his theology. He's, he's got it. He can contribute. He's the kind of guy you want on your team. You get somebody like this along, you're set. Can-do kind of person. He comes along and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responds with a strange, weird saying. You, know, you think I'll be like, all right, that's great. Come on. I got something. I got a job for you. Every member in ministry or something, right? Jesus says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man, talking about himself, has nowhere to lay his head. And that's the end of the conversation. Like We hear nothing else about this guy the rest of the Bible. He's gone, which means it probably didn't go any further than that. And what is Jesus after? I mean, what's he saying? Here's a guy who is well-to-do, he's got a comfortable job, He's a professional. He's a kind of, you know, kind of, probably the kind of guy you'd want to put on the administrative board. Probably is he's educated, can make some decisions, solid person. And Jesus says, you know, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to give up your pillow. That's practical theology, isn't it? <laughs> if you're going to follow me, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. You're going to have to give up the comfort of your pillow. And that's the end of we hear that that's the end of the story for this guy. What's Jesus doing? He's making the point that you don't come to me saying I'll follow you, but here's the way I want it to look. I'll follow you, but here's the job I want to have. I'll follow you, but here are my conditions. Here's my agenda. Here's how I want it to look. Jesus says if you're going to follow me, no questions asked, no conditions, you just follow me. And it may mean sacrificing a lot. It may mean sacrificing everything. And for this, in this instance, the comforts of home, a bed to call his own, perhaps. I mean, that's real, tangible sacrifice that Jesus is asking this scribe to make. He didn't have to make those, those kind of sacrifices to get connected. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, that's what I'm looking for. Somebody else comes along in verse 21. This guy's called another of his disciples. So apparently, we don't get the name, but apparently he's been around. And he kind of knows the ropes, maybe knows some of the Jesus' group, the other disciples. Verse 20, uh, 21, another of his disciples came and said, Lord... Let me first go and bury my father. And so I want to follow you, but I've got some family business to tend to. I've got some things to take care of. My dad's funeral is, oh, is here. And you need to know in the ancient world, there's very little in the Jewish world that's more important than making sure your parents get a proper burial. I mean, this is a massive deal. Um, you saw in the Gospels the energy that Jesus' friends put into making sure that he, his burial is tended to, and they're not even necessarily all of them related to. In the ancient world, you honor your parents. You honor your family. Your obligation to your family is this, is this highest, highest, highest level of priority. Some rabbis said this is even more important than praying, making sure that your parents get a proper, honorable 
respectable burial. And Jesus takes that cultural expectation and just blows it out of the water, doesn't he? This is one of those places where like all of our preconceived notions about who Jesus is just get obliterated. Right? Because we've seen pictures of Jesus, you know. He's probably sitting on a rock and there are children around. He's got that blonde beard that every Jewish person has. <laughs> like, I have a book one time. It's got that kind of you know white, blonde, bearded Jesus, and it says, you know, the real Jesus is the title of the book or something like that. And it's the most ironic thing I've ever seen because Jesus looks nothing like the, G, the guy on the book, but that's the title of the book, The Real Jesus. So we've, all, we've seen these pictures. You may have one in your house. There's Jesus, and he's just peaceful and long flowing hair and robes, and it's clean. he's clean, and he's, just, he's the kind of guy who you'd you know, probably let keep the nursery or something. And he's just, he's just respectable, and there are probably children hanging out around his feet, and his hand is probably out like this because he's imparting some great wisdom to them, and he's just... This, this really swell guy. And that's the image of Jesus. We have, that's kind of our, our modern icons. That's Jesus. And then we read the Gospels and we go, where's that guy in here? Because that guy would never say something like this. Here's a guy and he's saying, I got to go bury my dad. Funeral is coming up in a couple of days. And the scholars actually debate whether this guy's dad has actually passed away or not. You know, maybe his dad hasn't passed away yet, and he's thinking, I'm going to take care of him. He's in the nursing home. We've got a couple years. I'm going to handle this. And then when all that's settled, I'm available, Jesus. I'll be available later. Whatever it is, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter and says, listen, I don't have time for whatever you got to take care of. You follow me and let the dead bury themselves. Now you, well, you just imagine what would happen if a preacher came and said that to you after your parents had passed away. <laughs> Somebody would be calling the bishop right now. Oh, in fact, everybody would, you know. So-and-so just died. My, my, my mother just passed away, and the preacher showed up and said, let, the, let your mother bury herself. Get on a mission trip. Yeah. Nobody would tolerate that. It's crazy, isn't it? And that's exactly what Jesus says. Right? Because Jesus understands that this guy doesn't really care about his dad. He cares about setting the agenda for following Jesus. That's what's going on here, isn't it? This guy's like, let me just, hey, Jesus, it sure would be, look at all the crowds following you around. I'd sure like to be in on this. I got to handle some stuff, but I'll show up when the crowds are here and I'll be your right hand. Yeah, I'm good. I want to follow you. I just got some stuff to take care of. And Jesus comes through and says, no. No, no. You don't get to set the agenda here. You don't get to say, hey, I'll follow you, but I got a thing on Tuesday. It doesn't work that way. Disciples don't decide the agenda. They just commit unconditionally to the Savior. So gentle Jesus, meek and mild, just kind of drops a torpedo on this guy blows it up in his face. This is not a good church growth strategy, is it? And then you get the Pharisees. If anybody's got an agenda, it's the Pharisees. I mean, and again, religious figures connected, kind of got their, their club thing going. Everybody knows that they obey God better than everybody else. You want to have these guys around. 
They are attentive to the Bible. They do everything they can to obey God and, and more, more so. In fact, maybe they obey a little too much. <laughs> you know, don't work on the Sabbath. Don't even walk, maybe. You don't want to risk working by walking too far. It's that kind of thing. And they expect the influential people to understand how important they are. You've probably met someone like this. Don't look around. They expect the right kind, they're the right kind of people, and if you want to be the right kind of people, you hang out with them. And so they see Jesus, and he's hanging out, not with the right kind of people, but the wrong kind of people, as he often did. Tax collectors, we'll talk about those guys in a minute, and sinners. And the Pharisees see that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, and they don't go straight to Jesus, they go to his disciples. <laughs> you know your heart ain't right if you go to Jesus's you know, colleagues instead of straight to him. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus is, he's tuned in, he overhears it, and he steps in and reminds them. I'm not here for people who think they got it all together, which is good for those of us who know we don't. I'm not here for people who think they got it all together, Jesus says. I'm here for people who are broken and who know it. I'm here for people who have dark hearts and who know it. I'm here for people who are sick and who know it. The reality is the Pharisees are sick too. They just don't know it. Some of you are in the medical field. It's, I imagine it's remarkably difficult to treat people who won't admit that they're sick. <laughs> Got to hear the diagnosis before you can hear the treatment plan. The Pharisees are unwilling to confess the darkness that's in their heart, and Jesus just straight calls them on it. It's like, the reason I'm not coming and eating with you is because you don't know that you need me. These folks, they get it. They know that they need me. And so the Pharisees have this agenda. They have expectations. Jesus, here's what it looks like to be the Messiah. You talk about the kingdom of God and all that. Don't you know kingdom of God movements? We're supposed to be involved in that. Why don't you have us? Let's make a plan. Let's get a thing going. And Jesus has nothing. He's just not interested in their agenda. He's just not interested in it. On the other side of it, though, we, we see people in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, who are just messed up people. I mean, they are messed. They, they're sinners, and they know it. And Matthew, the tax collector, is one of them. So in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, you get this kind of, you got this comparison. You've got these people who come to Jesus with conditions, and then you've got Matthew. And as we read it, we discover that he, Jesus comes to him, and he responds with no condition. Jesus walks up to Matthew. He's at his booth, right? In the ancient world, tax, this tax collector thing, it's not like an IRS kind of agent. Uh, it's more like a toll booth. And the Jewish people didn't like Jewish people who were tax collectors. You probably know this, because they had... A, signed a contract with the Roman Empire. You know, they'll collect taxes on behalf of the empire, and then they were free to take a commission, whatever they thought was appropriate. And so their Jewish kinsmen didn't really appreciate that because they were basically extorting their family members. And you know how this kind of thing might, you know, you go, maybe you go online and you buy something or you go somewhere uh, to buy a car and you got the price, but then there's a, a dozen fees that come with it and all of a sudden it's, few extra thousand dollars than you thought it was going to be to start with. You know, you go and you, 
There's a registration fee. Here's the price, and then there's a registration fee, and then there's a commission, and oh, wait, you haven't signed up for this thing. There's a processing fee for that, and all of a sudden, whatever it is costs twice as much as it used to. This is kind of how it was. The tax collector would come by the booth, and it's, well, the Romans want their cut, but I'll take this fee and that fee, and oh, by the way, I get a commission, and cough it up. You can see why people didn't like these guys. I mean, it was just, it was like extortion. And so Matthew is a sinner, and he knows it. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to be around him. They can't stand him. The Pharisees would never have him over for a meal. He's, on their, in their view, is, a, is on the fringe. He's on the outside. And Jesus walks straight up to him, to his booth, a little toll booth kind of thing on the road. And Jesus says two words. Two words. Follow me. Right? There's no... Hey, I've got a wonderful plan for your life. There's no, hey, have you ever seen the, heard the Romans' road to salvation? Hey, let me tell you the four spiritual laws. Not criticizing those things, just illustrating how Jesus doesn't go there. No sermon. No altar call. Just a command. Follow me. And apparently it's so compelling that this guy, Matthew, walks away from everything. He's probably a six-figure kind of guy. Tax collectors, they didn't take the job because it didn't pay well. They, took, they were willing to sacrifice every relationship they had because it was worth, because they could make a lot of money. Really despicable people, isn't it? Sacrifice all their relationships and families and friendships for money. It's greed. He's got greed in his heart. That's the kind of thing that motivates us. He walks away from it. And Jesus says, Two words, and the guy walks away from all of his sin. He doesn't say anything. You know, these other guys, hey, I want to follow you, but I got to go and take care of my father's funeral. Hey, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go, unless it means not having my pillow. You know, those kinds of, that's what you've got in one column. In this one, you've got a sinner, a tax collector, who's a scoundrel, who everyone hates, Jesus says, follow me, and he walks away from everything for Jesus. No conditions. And the gospel writer wants us to know that's what discipleship looks like. Disciples don't set the agenda like the scribe and the other guy, the Pharisees. Disciples just commit without conditions. That's all there is to it. He walks away from his position, walks away from his job, his income, and he walks away from his greedy heart. Notice he doesn't walk away from his friends, though. Because here's the thing, he knows he needs Jesus. And chances are, if you know you need Jesus, you realize the people you hang out with need Jesus, too. <laughs> And so all of a sudden, Jesus is eating at his house. And there's all kind of unsavory people showing up. Tax collectors, sinners, whatever that. That's just kind of a catch-all category for every last horrible thing you can imagine, isn't it? And that's who Jesus is eating with, and that's who the Pharisees don't like him eating with. But Jesus understands that those people know they need him. And when you know you need him, you don't come with conditions, do you? When you know you need him, you don't come with conditions. And so Jesus is presenting 
all of us with this with a choice really are we going to come to him insisting on control or are we going to come to him with open hands saying you take control i trust you I don't understand. Things are not going according to plan. My internship didn't pan out the way I thought it would. My ministry didn't pan out the way I thought it would. My job didn't pan out the way I thought it would. My family hasn't panned out the way I thought it would. I don't understand it. My expectations haven't been met. But Jesus, instead of wrenching control from you, I'm going to become more surrendered in this moment for whatever it is you want to do in my life and in the lives of those around me through me now. Because disciples don't decide the agenda when they don't like the circumstances. They just give themselves to Jesus more and more and more, deeply and deeply and deeply. That's what it means to be a disciple. Discipleship is not church attendance. Discipleship is not tithing. Discipleship is not going to communion from time to time. All those <laughs> Disciples do all of those things, but none of them are the sum and substance of following Jesus. The sum and substance of following Jesus has to do with the posture of our hearts and whether we are holding on to control over aspects of our lives or whether we've released that to Jesus and said, no conditions, it's all you. And he's trustworthy because he gives himself without conditions. You don't go to the cross because you're holding something back, do you? Nobody says, I'm going to die for you and be tortured to death for you because they're kind of carving out some space for their own preferences. When Jesus takes that old rugged cross on his shoulder and climbs Calvary, crippled by the weight of it, so that somebody else has to come along and help, he didn't do it because he had an agenda. Because he wanted to be in control. When he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, Father, Jesus was embodying the principle that we are talking about. The Son of God didn't determine the agenda. He committed to the cross without condition. Because he loves each of us unconditionally. And that's the Lord who says, follow me. Follow me. It takes a radical reorientation of everything. Every priority, every energy that we give, all of our values, Jesus wants, he just wants to turn them on their head. Actually, he wants to turn them right side up. He wants to make us whole. Because he knows it's our best. And it's really where joy is. If you think about the characters in the story, that scribe, you think that scribe went away happy? Think he went away feeling like he was experiencing God. The, the Messiah just said, if you want to follow me, you've got to give up everything. We never hear another word from him. I think the implication is he made the wrong decision. You think he felt good about that? really experiencing God's best right now, just walk, turn my back on Jesus. <laughs> no, of course not. That scribe, the other guy, hey, Jesus, I'll be your follower, but I got some stuff to take care of. You think he felt good when he heard Jesus say, let the dead bury their own, their own the dead? You think Matthew felt the joy of the Lord when Jesus showed up at his house for dinner? Yeah, 
You see, that's the kind of implication here, isn't it? That real, deep satisfaction, real, deep joy, ultimate happiness, everything God designs for us is found not in clenching our fists with conditions and control. Lord, we got to do this my way. <laughs> real joy and real fullness is found in turning loose of those conditions and plans and agendas. Even when things are rocky, even when our hearts are broken, even when we're grieving, even when we've been brought face to face with the depths of our own darkness, in those moments, the answer for joy and happiness and satisfaction is not found in a fist clenched around control of our life, but in a life that is fully surrendered to Jesus. In that moment, for whatever he has for us. So we've all been tempted at one point in our lives to hold something back tempted to keep control. Here's my vision for the good life, Jesus, and I'll follow you as long as it works out with this. And Jesus comes back and says, that's not good enough for me, friends. I want you to follow me, but you've got to release your vision of the good life. You've got to release your expectations for what I'm going to do with you. You've got to release control. Jesus says. And that's really what faith is, isn't it? I'm going to trust the one who gave his life for me, that he's got what's best for me, even if I can't see it very clearly. So that's the invitation today. Scripture always provides the opportunity for some reflection, some self-diagnosis. And when we get these kind of contrasts between scribes with agendas and sinners like Matthew, the Lord is inviting us to consider, you know, where, where am I on the spectrum? Am I tending towards my agenda and control or am I giving it to Jesus? And so my prayer for all of us today in this season, whatever the Holy Spirit's saying in your life, in your heart right now, here's the thing, you got to turn loose. Here's what could be different for everybody. Could be some pain that's been there, we just can't let go of it. Could be something with a job. It could be different for everybody in the room. Whatever it is, the Lord Jesus says, if you want my joy and my fullness, I need you to let go of that and trust me with it. So we're, we're going to sing. And as we do, let's let the Lord have those things.